Hello and welcome back to the Clinical Update podcast from MIMS Learning. I'm Pat Anderson, the editor of MIMS Learning. We've got lots of key learning points for you to help you in your day-to-day work as a clinician. We are editors rather than the clinicians ourselves, but we do our best to let you know about some of the clinical topics we've been working on with our expert writers and speakers. In this episode, Sangeeta Krishnan will talk to Dr. Richard Smith, who is chair of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, about a subject that affects all of us, clinicians, patients and politicians alike. This is, of course, the climate crisis, and he'll talk about what we can do to try and reduce our carbon footprints and influence others to do the same. Also in this episode, Dawn Powell and I will discuss a learning module on chronic kidney disease written by one of our regular authors, Dr Pippin Singh. And to wrap up, Sangeeta will join us in presenting three key points on scarlet fever, tying in nicely with the learning content that we provide on paediatrics. For now, let's talk about chronic kidney disease, which is an important and perhaps underdiagnosed condition that patients may not even know they have. Earlier this year, GP Dr Pippin Singh published a module on MIMS Learning that provides learning points for primary care physicians on the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, guidelines on chronic kidney disease in people of all ages. After completing this module, you should be able to better identify chronic kidney disease, which we will refer to as CKD from now on, and manage it in primary care. In the module, Dr Singh discusses NICE's recommendations on who should be tested for CKD, how it should be identified, and management options. The management options section discusses the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in CKD as well. And as many clinicians will know, these agents were launched a few years ago and are used for an increasing number of indications. They're now indicated for CKD in people with and without diabetes in specific circumstances. So Dawn, do you have any initial questions about this module? Yeah, so I presume by testing for CKD, Dr Singh is talking about identifying CKD in people who may be at increased risk of developing the condition. Who does he say should undergo this testing screening? Well, the list of people who should be tested or screened is quite extensive. This includes annual testing for people who take medicines that can have an impact on their renal function. And from there, the list goes on to include people with diabetes or hypertension, previous acute kidney injury, cardiovascular disease and gout. And there are more conditions mentioned in the module, which is free to access on MIMS Learning. GPs should also consider testing children or young people with the conditions I just mentioned, alongside those who had a low birth weight of under 2.5 kilograms. Children or young people with a history of acute kidney injury or just one kidney should definitely be offered testing. Dr Singh recommends thinking about how you screen people and whether you're thinking about all the relevant groups. Although he does say it may be challenging for GPs to try and screen everyone in those at-risk groups. Okay, so if testing does identify CKD, what are the goals of treatment? Well, at present, there's no therapy that can reverse the disease. So the lifestyle and drug therapy that's used aims to stop it progressing. And in this module, Dr Singh focuses on the pharmacotherapy that's used by GPs and other clinicians to try and achieve this. The mainstay of therapy starts with blood pressure control for people who have an ACR of over 30 milligrams per millimole, in other words, severely increased protein in their urine, the recommendation is to use an angiotensin receptor blocker, an ARB, 
or an angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor or ACE inhibitor. These agents act on blood vessels to stop them constricting. But now, as the module points out, we also have SGLT2 inhibitors, which can be used for patients with diabetes who are already taking the highest doses of ARBs or ACE inhibitors that they can tolerate. Okay, just to follow up on something you said in the beginning, didn't a study show that SGLT2 inhibitors were effective with people with CKD, whether or not they had diabetes? So, I mean, what does NICE say about using SGLT2 inhibitors in this context? Yes, very recently, NICE has said that as well as using SGLT2 inhibitors for patients with diabetes or diabetes-related CKD, one of these drugs can now be used for those without diabetes who meet certain EGFR criteria. But this is a pretty specific case and clinicians would need to refer to the NICE technology appraisal that gives the relevant information. And we'll include a link to that at the bottom of the podcast player. Okay. I mean, so NICE also states that SGLT2 inhibitors can be used for people with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So a person with newly diagnosed CKD may potentially already be on an SGLT2 inhibitor because if they have existing heart failure or existing diabetes. Absolutely. And thanks for making that point, Dawn. So do have a look at Dr. Singh's module as it gives quite a lot more information about the guidelines, including their recommendations for patients who are frail or taking a lot of medications for other conditions. And as well as this learning module that we've just discussed, we have other learning modules on CKD. These include an on-demand version of a talk that Professor Raj Thakkar gave at our virtual event MIMS Learning Live Digital, and a three-part series by Dr Andrew Frankel on the topic of diabetes-related kidney disease. So do come to the MIMS Learning website and have a look at these useful learning resources. Next, we're delighted to have Dr Richard Smith as a guest talking to Sangeeta about the climate crisis and what doctors and other healthcare professionals can do to help. Joining me today is Dr Richard Smith. He's former editor of the BMJ and chair of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change. Glad you could join us, Richard. Yeah, good to be here. So first, I want to ask you, what does the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change entail? Well, the UK Health Alliance, as its name implies, is an alliance of organisations of health professionals. So we have most of the Royal Colleges, the physicians, the nurses, the surgeons, the pharmacists. We have paramedics, dentists, vets. We also have the BMA, the Lancet and the BMJ. And altogether, our members number over a million, so most of the NHS workforce. And we exist really for three reasons. One, to do everything we can to mitigate the effects of climate change and the destruction of nature. That means sort of do everything we can to stop it happening. We also exist to encourage adaptation, meaning that a lot of the problems of climate change and the destruction of nature are already here. And we need to recognise that and adapt accordingly. And then thirdly, we also exist to point out that if we made all the changes we need to make to respond to climate change, so using fossil fuels much less, uh, driving less, flying less, and if we exercised more, walked and cycled more than we drove, 
you know, our health would be improved. I mean, unsurprisingly, when you think about it in terms of evolution, what's good for the planet and what's good for us in terms of health is the same thing. So there's a positive message to all of this. So I wanted to ask you, you already have a background in healthcare, but what made you be interested in climate change? I mean, I've been very concerned about this for a long time. I mean, when I was when I was a very young doctor, I was a member of what was then called the Ecology Party. And I went around collecting waste paper in Wandsworth back in the days before there was any kind of organised collection of waste paper. When I joined the BMJ, I made sure that we published on environmental issues. When Fiona Godley, who followed me as the editor, first joined the BMJ, I got her to write a series of articles on environmental issues and health. She went to the first Earth Summit, and she has kept up that interest in climate change and the destruction of nature. And in fact, it was she, together with Robin Stott, uh, another doctor and a long-term campaigner on environmental issues, they began the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change perhaps 10 years mm -hmm. ago. And they asked me to apply to be the chair in 2019, which I did, and I was interviewed and I was appointed. I chair other bodies as well, but this is the thing that takes up most of my time. I mean, I think increasingly people recognise that this is a very serious threat and people recognise it's not in the future, it's happening now. But to be honest, I don't think people understand quite how serious it is. And it's all happening really more rapidly even than people expected. So in my mind, this is the defining issue of our age. It's such an important issue. How can a healthcare professional or even a primary care network of GPs, what's the simplest change that they can make that can have a significant impact to reducing the carbon footprint? Yes, I mean, there's all sorts of changes that people can make. I mean, the easiest, obviously, in a sense of personal changes. So if you stop driving and flying and whenever possible, walk or cycle or use public transport, that makes a difference. Change your diet from a one based largely on animal products to one based predominantly on plant-based products. You can change your bank, you can talk to others about it, you can join campaigns, you can write to your MP. Yes, so there are a lot of things you can do on an individual level, but what about on a wider scale? What does the UK Health Alliance do on a global scale? So we act globally. This is a global problem above all others. And in the end, what Britain does will have only limited impact. It's what happens in China, India, the US, that is really going to determine what happens to us long term. So we campaign globally. I mean, health professionals have international links in a way that other groups don't necessarily a lot of our emphasis is national. We campaign on all sorts of things. So we got, for example, with the health and care bill, we got the NHS commitments to get to net zero written into the bill. Uh, we operate regionally. We've been campaigning on the extension of the ultra-low emission zone. 
in London, which has become so controversial, and we are yeah. campaigning for that to happen in other cities. And then we operate within the health system, so work very closely with all four of the NHSs. And actually, the NHS in England, with its Greener NHS programme, is way, way ahead of any other health system in the world in terms of getting to net zero. And then we work with our individual organisations. We've got more than 40 organisations as members. And we have agreed a set of 10 things that we have asked all of them to try and do around their travel plans, their diets, developing a plan for how their organisation will get to net zero. And then we encourage professional activities. And actually GPs, in many ways, have been leaders in all of this. And to some extent, it's easier for general practitioners because they have more control over their environment to get to net zero. And there's a toolkit for helping all practices get to net zero. So there's, there's a lot that you can do. You spoke at this year's British Society of Gastroenterology's annual meeting about climate change. And you said that the biggest contributor to the NHS carbon footprint seems to be procurement. So how do you address that? And how do you go about dealing with that? Yes, well, when you look at the carbon footprint of the NHS in England, about three quarters of it is procurement, you know, the drugs and equipment and food that is bought by the NHS. And interestingly, if you look at the carbon footprint of, say, a pharmaceutical company, you see the same thing, that about three quarters of their footprint is the materials they buy in order to make their drugs and, and run their business which sort of illustrates to me how everything has got to change. It can't be just one thing that changes. It has to be everything that changes. And, of course, the NHS has considerable purchasing power. So you can go to a company, and and this is what it's doing, and saying we have a commitment to get to net zero on all we directly control by 2040 and on everything, including what we procure, by 2045. So you've got to work with us. And where they've got to at the moment is that when they are doing a procurement, there's a 10% weighting. So if you have a plan, a coherent, well-evidenced plan to get to net zero as a supplier, then when it comes to the competition over procurement, you'll get 10% extra. And the NHS plans to up that every year. And eventually it will reach a point where it says, well, we just won't do business with you if you are not getting to net zero as quickly as we can. In many ways, a lot of companies, although there is you know, greenwashing saying they're doing things when it isn't really happening, yeah. to be honest, I think a lot of companies are ahead of the NHS. They're taking this very seriously. And I think also they see it as a competitive advantage that as the world becomes more and more concerned about climate change and more and more concerned to decarbonize our economies, then there's going to be a competitive advantage in being someone who is at the head of all of this, who's a leader rather than a laggard. So, I mean, you'd mentioned all these changes that we can implement, which is fantastic. I want to ask you about a, a change that you made in your life that you feel made the biggest difference towards carbon neutrality. Well, one thing I've done is I've stopped flying. I used to fly a lot. I mean, over the years as editor of the BMJ, and then I ran a global program around non-communicable disease. I had an enormously high footprint from 
flying. So I have given up flying, but I have to confess there's an exception. So I have a son who has a wife in Mexico and two children whom, you know, I very much want to visit. And it's very difficult to get to Mexico without flying. So I do fly to him. And, and by, and I, I mean, in some ways, this illustrates our predicament. By flying to and from Mexico, you know, I far exceed what really should be my ration of carbon. So, you know, what do I do? Do I say, well, I can't see my family or they can't come here or do I? I mean, it sort of illustrates how high carbon consumption in some ways is built into our lives and is very difficult to avoid, which is why, I mean, despite us having recognised the problem for, for climate change, you know, really since the 1980s or even before, we've just completely failed to make the kind of response we need to make. So at the moment, although we need to reduce carbon emissions by something like 7 to 10% a year, they're actually going up year on year. So we're not doing at all well. And I've changed my diet. So we now, I do the cooking and we eat very little meat. We do eat meat and we do eat dairy, but we've cut it right back. And actually, you can make quite a difference simply by reducing. I mean, I think there are a lot of people in Britain who've tended to eat meat every day. And it's not difficult, really, to cut it down to one or two days a week. So my next question is, is there someone who's influenced you in your life that you'd like to talk about? Yes, someone who's had a huge influence on me, the person who comes first. I mean, there are a lot of people who've had an influence on me, but one particular person was someone called Ivan Illich, who probably is not well known to a lot of people who might listen to this. He was a critic of industrial society and he wrote a book, for example, called Limits to Medicine. And he had an article in The Lancet in 1974, where he argued that modern medicine was in many ways the major threat to health in the world today. And when I was a medical student in Edinburgh, I heard him speak, and he completely sort of galvanized me. I mean, I'd begun to worry that a lot of what went on in medicine was more for the benefit of the doctors than the patients. And so I had an uneasy feeling. And then when I heard Illich speak, I thought, you know, there's just such a lot of truth in what he said. Birth, death, pain, suffering, all these things that are fundamental to being human and how do we respond to them. And really the core of Illich's argument was that these things are inevitable. I mean, this is life. We're, we're born, we die, we'll suffer, we'll be in pain at times. And we have to try and find meaning for these things. And that really is what a culture does. And then to some extent, along comes modern medicine and says, we can fix all these things. You know, you don't need to suffer. You don't need to be in pain. We can treat your pain and give us enough time and we can defeat death. But Illich would argue that that's an empty promise. And I think you can see it is an empty promise. Thank you for sharing that. My last question was, can you recommend any books to read? Yeah, no, I'm a great a reading, I have to say, is hugely important to me. And I suppose just relevant to this particular conversation the book Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells, which is now very well known. I mean, it was published a few years ago, but it is a 
it's a wonderful summary of all the ways that climate change and the destruction of nature is going to affect us and what we how we need to change in order to respond and it's a very well written readable book so i strongly recommend that as well all right that's that's fantastic thank you so much and thank you for your time richard and to everyone who's listening i just want to say you can learn more about the subject in our climate change and healthcare module on mems learning which covers dr smith's talk at the bsg so thank you very much thanks So I'm back with Sangeeta and Dawn for our regular three key points feature. Today's topic is scarlet fever, which is covered in a learning module on our website. So what's our first point, Sangeeta? So the first point is, though cases of scarlet fever have stabilised since the winter outbreak, invasive group A strep infections remain high. A little background. Scarlet fever is caused by group A beta hemolytic streptococci, GABHS, so far this season, from 12 September 2022 to 7th May 2023, there have been 55,872 notifications of scarlet fever compared to 54,394 in the last update on 20th April. In the last comparable high season from September 2017 to September 2018, there were 30,768 scarlet fever notifications overall across the year. Dr. Colin Brown, Incident Director at UKHSA, said, While scarlet fever notifications are in line with what we typically see at this time of year, we are still seeing relatively high levels of invasive group A strep infections in the oldest and youngest age groups. It's important that we continue to help stop spread of all germs in the community and two vulnerable groups. The MIMS learning module on scarlet fever explains that transmission occurs through respiratory droplets in close contact, but because of their ability to survive variations in temperature and humidity, they can also be spread via contaminated surfaces. Hand washing, covering the mouth when coughing and sneezing are encouraged. Face masks may also be used. Thanks, Sangeeta. So our first point is that at the time of recording, although scarlet fever cases have stabilised, there is still a substantial amount of invasive group A streptococcus infection in the oldest and youngest age groups. Our next point from the module is that in addition to the characteristic strawberry tongue and scarlet rash, other signs and symptoms can support the diagnosis. So scarlet fever can affect children from 5 to 15 years old, most commonly in the winter and spring. Onset is usually rapid with fever, sore throat, vomiting, headache, abdominal pain, myalgia and malaise. About 12 to 24 hours later, the rash starts on the neck and extends to the trunk and extremities. The rash is more prominent in the skin folds of the neck, the groin, the axilla, and has a deep red linear appearance known as pastias lines. It's a fine erythematous punctate eruption, which blanches with pressure, followed by dry, rough, sandpapery skin. The fever peaks on the second day and will usually settle in five to seven days. And on oral examination, the tongue is usually heavily coated and papillae are visible through the coating. Then this coating sloughs off, leaving a red, shiny, so-called strawberry tongue with prominent papillae. The pharynx and tonsils will have a typical thick exudate, similar to that seen in bacterial tonsillitis or glandular fever. And four chymer spots, 
or petechiae may appear on the hard and soft palate. So our second point is, don't forget the full range of signs and symptoms that you may see. Although obviously if there's an outbreak, then that will help you to have scarlet fever at front of mind. And hopefully that won't be the case. So Dawn, what's our third point? The third point is that patient and or parent education is vital. To recap, the treatment of choice for scarlet fever is 10 days of penicillin V or amoxicillin. However, clarithromycin is used for those with a penicillin allergy. Parents or patients should be informed that completing the course of antibiotics is important because of the need to reduce the risk of complications. Serious complications of scarlet fever can include septicemia and multi-organ failure. Parents and patients should also be advised about the need to reduce the risk of spreading the infection, in particular avoiding contact with people who are at high risk of complications. And also parents and patients should be encouraged to maintain fluids to prevent dehydration. However, parents can be advised that providing they are well enough, children can return to school 24 hours after starting antibiotics. Thanks Dawn. So just to round up, our three key points to remember are firstly that scarlet fever cases have stabilised but there is still invasive group A streptococcus infection around. Secondly, don't forget the full range of signs and symptoms that you may see. And thirdly, don't forget that important component of patient or parent education to ensure completion of the course of antibiotics. Don't forget there's a lot of paediatrics content on our paediatrics page and we're having an event in November which provides learning updates on a range of clinical topics including paediatrics. This will be in Liverpool on Wednesday 29th November so please do sign up at mimslearninglive.com. It's a full day event and it will feature the very best in speakers and topics reflecting the range of conditions that you encounter in clinical practice. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next time.